0: shepherd bible church sermon podcast our mission at good shepherd is to proclaim the gospel so that all people will believe grow and hope in jesus one of the main ways we believe that we are accomplishing our mission is through the proclaimed word we believe that the preached word creates and sustains the church our desire is to preach christ crucified for you which means we hope that jesus is the substance and hero of every sermon and that Jesus is preached into the places of sin and brokenness into our hearts. We thank you for joining us and hope that you will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. Father, we place our life into your hands. And in many ways, through our normal, everyday life, that seems like a easy thing to pray. But Father, even as we reflect on tonight's text where um, a saint, a, a person who you love certainly, and we love from a distance, a uh, father who we never met, but, but certainly someone whose who's life was taken from him, uh, Father, it's, it's probably at that moment rather difficult to place our Life into your hands alone. And Father, we don't even often know what we pray or sing, uh, but Father, in many ways, it doesn't stop us from singing these words and even meaning them. Um, Father, we, we long for the day when all safe and blessed we shall meet at last. And Father, we actually are praying tonight that you would come. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Uh, rescue us. But certainly, Father, if you have more things for us to do, then strengthen us. And we, we know, and we have rehearsed it already, and we'll continue to rehearse it, that it's through thorny ways that leads to a joyful end. And so, Father, the death that you have died is the death that we too must embrace, even as we live, even as the resurrection uh, flows through our veins. Father, we know that to experience that life would mean a death of the current life that we possess. And so, Father, give us patience to die. Give us joy in a death. And certainly, Father, beyond all hope, give us life when it seems like there's nothing left. Father, uh, this text is important. It's uh, it's heavy. It's not necessarily easy. uh, But, Father, I pray that you would help us to understand it. And I pray that the gospel would shine through the darkness, uh, that in the middle of a, of a gory scene, that we would see the love of Jesus, just like uh, when we look at the cross, and as we sing, as we will later on, bring its scenes before me. Father, I pray that tonight we will uh, allow the, the scene of Stephen to reflect on the good news of the gospel that we believe and cherish and love and bank everything on. Uh, so Father, tonight I pray for someone here tonight, or all of us here tonight, who feel this, who feel this weight of desperation on a variety of different levels. We are desperate as uh, certainly people without righteousness to call our own. Uh, Father, we are desperate when it comes to um, our next step. Father, we cannot lead ourselves. Uh, Father, some of us are are desperate when it comes to uh, the roles that you've called us to, whether it's at work to be successful, whether it's uh, in the home to be um, disciplined and godly. Father, we look at those uh, things that we have on our plates and we realize, Father, we're desperate for you. We're desperate for your power and for your strength. And so tonight, Father, we lean on every word that comes out of your mouth. We ask that you would strengthen us in this way, that you would nourish our faith uh, and give us hope, certainly, as we embrace the next week to come. Father, I thank you for uh, the opportunity to be here at Good Shepherd Bible Church, and I pray that you would continue to grow our church, uh, help us to uh, impact this community, uh, allow even the Easter season uh, to be a step forward uh, as we, in many ways, march against the gates of hell. Uh, not that our, our neighbors are this uh, tribe of evil people. Certainly, Father, we we love these folks just as much as you love these folks. And we're asking that you would allow us to meet people where they are. Uh, but Father, allow us to be a light. Allow, allow us to be a, a beacon of hope here in this community. And allow people not to, not to think that we have our act together, but really to confess we don't have our act together, but we have a great Savior who came and had his act together and died the death we deserve to die and gave us a life uh, that we couldn't earn for ourselves. Uh, So, Father, allow us to, even tonight, allow allow the gospel to go forward and and impact many. And we pray these things through Christ. Amen. All right, you may be seated. And uh, you can turn to page 44 or Acts chapter 7. Thankfully, the passage that we're reading tonight is nowhere near as long as it was last week. I'm thankful for that a little bit. You guys have no idea how much it takes time to prepare just reading. Especially that many verses, you read it over and over and over and over again, just because you want to mess anything up. This week it didn't take as long, it was great. Standing in front of a mirror, reading names. Didn't have to do that as much this week, it's nice. Alright, we are re- uh, reading though, uh, chapter 7, uh, starting in verse 54, and then we will go into chapter 8 and read up to verse... Uh, so a little tweener passage here between chapter 7 and 8 by the way, I just hope you know like, and if you don't know this, that's okay the, the, the biblical text didn't come with n- a numbering system so the 7s, the 8s, the, the verse numbering that's, that's not inspired material so you're like, why is he messing around with chapter numbers? well, you're allowed to, it's okay it's not, it's not inspired so maybe that's in someone's brain maybe, maybe not, maybe it's just in my brain alright, verse 54 now when uh, the Pharisees had heard these things, or the, the actually it's the, um, uh, the, the freedmen, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him, at Stephen. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. As we discussed last week, there is a whole host of things that Stephen laid the boom on uh, when it comes to this group of uh, religious leaders. And nothing is more clear than his uh, last-ditch right hook, if you will, in verse 51. Uh, We'll go ahead and just bit in pieces uh, read this passage. He calls them a stiff-necked people uncircumcised in their hearts, not believing the promises of God in their hearts and in their ears. They always are resisting the Holy Spirit. They rejected the Messiah. They, re- they rejected Jesus and the prophets that would prophesy for this Messiah. And then finally in verse 53, those who received the law, they had the law and yet they did not keep it. And that is just a fury of combo punches and you can imagine the outrage against, uh, against Stephen for this. It's hard to kind of embrace this understanding of being outraged against somebody saying things unless what you are holding to is literally your entire religious system or your life's philosophy. And this religious group of freedmen had really latched on to the law and really had latched on to a uh, cultural Israeli identity and said, this is all we have. And so when they were challenged by Stephen uh, and really cut to the quick uh, and really put on blast in a very, very, very specific and pointed and very intelligent way, uh, you can imagine the the heat that would come Stephen's way. And we have talked about this kind of um, mental setup or this kind of these two different philosophies in a variety of different ways. And I'm going to try to introduce even yet another way of, of thinking about this because we're going to see it come, come to play uh, even when they stone Stephen and then Paul ravaging the church going forward. Uh, but we've talked about you can live life two ways. You can live life by the gospel, which is a message that proclaims that it has been done for you. So you can live from a place of, uh, of acceptance or God's love for you. Or you can work from a place of law or a philosophy of law. Uh, that goes all the way back to Moses. That would, uh, it's, its mantra would simply be, do this and live. Or you will live by this law. And so if you have the ability to fulfill the law, then you have the ability to live. If you don't have the ability to fulfill the law, then, well, certainly then death is coming. There's another way that we have talked about it. It's, uh, it's, li- it's the promise of power. So there is, uh, within the idea of power, there's a promise that it gives to you. If you can be successful, if you can dominate, if you can be right, uh, if you can be morally excellent, if you can exert your will and your power in this life, there is a promise attached to that, that you can get life. But uh, it's certainly a lie. It's not a true promise. It's a false promise. But what we've learned and what we've seen from the apostles and from the resurrection of Jesus is that there is true power in the promise of Jesus himself. That as Jesus walked out of the tomb and he said, where I am, there you will be also. I am going away, but I am coming to return. And you, the, the power of, of resurrection that I have, I am giving to you. And the spirit that I have, I am giving to you. Not by merit not by law, not by any sort of rule-keeping, but simply by the means of grace. This is the promise that God has given to us. And there is true power here uh, within the the gospel of Jesus. And I want to kind of introduce a new way of thinking, which is not a new way uh, at all of thinking. Maybe it's just a helpful clarity to what uh, what these philosophies are. And basically, uh, there's instead of thinking about it as a, as a world philosophy, may thinking about it in terms of a theology. Theology is just a, it's a combo word. Theo meaning God, ology meaning the study of, so it's the study of God. And the reality is, just like we all have a guiding philosophy for our lives, we all have philosophies about a lot of things, we also are theologians. All of us are. Uh, and you say, well, I don't believe there is a God. Well, that is a study of God. That is a stu- you could say he doesn't exist, and that actually is a, uh, is a precept study of God himself. Uh, even if you don't believe there is one, uh, that is saying something about God. And we all uh, kind of approach theology in two different ways. There is a theology of assent, uh, or the Reformers used to call this a theology of glory. So there's a theology, there's an understanding about God that within our own personal beings and our own personal progress, The whole goal of theology is that we, in one sense, like demonstrate some sort of personal glory. If you kind of uh, are looking for a a, a symbol or an icon to kind of match with the theology of glory, you can imagine a ladder. You can simply imagine that this whole guiding philosophy of uh, approaching God is a, a ladder philosophy. You do what you can do to climb up to God. And if you can climb up to God, well, there is glory to be had there. This is contrasted with what the reformers often called a theology of the cross. A theology of the cross, where life is not upward mobility to God. Life or theology is really God's uh, descending mobility towards people. Uh, And the icon here, instead of using a ladder, it looks like a cross. And this isn't simply our cross first, it's our cross second. Uh, It is really God's cross. And our understanding of Who God is is really filtered through the lens of a cross, which you can imagine would be very difficult to process. It'd be very counterintuitive. This would not be a natural thing for us to think through. Let's shove our whole understanding of God through the sausage maker of God's own execution. That'd be a very, very difficult thing for us to comprehend. And so in order to kind of get a better understanding of what these two things are, I'd like to to kind of read for you a couple tenets. And this is, you're like, I did not come to church for this. And you didn't, but that's okay. Uh, I'm doing a little edumacation tonight, and that's all right. A couple tenets from what is known as the Heidelberg Disputation. I'm not going to go through this. We don't need to go through it. It's not the point. But this really old dead guy named Martin Luther, who some of you have probably heard of, he laid together this understanding of there is a theology of glory, and this is really what he was facing within the realm of the Catholic Church in his day. He recognized it as a theology of glory. If you do all the things that you are supposed to do, there is glory to be had personally, and he saw that as an affront to God in Jesus, that our own personal glory would be at stake or sought after or achieved would, to Luther, be a slap in the face against God himself, who wasn't in, in his own right, in his own way, seeking to gain glory for himself. He sought the good of others. Versus a theology of the cross where Jesus himself embraced uh, the realities of a cross for us so that he might bring many sons to glory. So God being a God of love and God being a God of mercy is a high thought for, for Luther. So real quick, I just want to bring out a couple, a couple of these that would highlight this idea of law for us. That would give us a clear understanding of theology of glory, which is a theology of law, do this and live, versus what he has to say about a theology of glory. And this will help us as we process Stephen's own message and his own death. But I have this here for you, and this is one of the the first couple tenets right out of the gate talking about this theology uh, theology of glory versus theology of the cross. Luther says, He deserves to be called a theologian, however, who comprehends the visible and manifest things of God seen through the suffering and the cross. To put everything that you know to be true about God through the lens of a cross, that is someone who deserves to be a theologian, Luther says. Second point, a theologian of glory calls evil good and good evil. A theologian of the cross calls the thing what it is. I want you to even begin to think of the people in our story who Luther would call a theologian of glory, these Pharisees, these religious people who are seeking to, in one sense, achieve, live for a position of acceptance. He would call them a theologian of glory, and we see this, don't we? They call evil good, and they call good evil. They make up their own rules. Even the law of God is twisted towards their own purposes. But a theologian of the cross can call a thing what it is, is allowed to say the truth, is allowed to actually accept the truth within himself, but also in his world. And we see this reflected in Stephen. He's allowed to simply state the truth as is. Luther goes on, the law brings uh, the wrath of God, kills, reviles, accuses, judges, and condemns everything that is not in Christ. And again, we see this clearly. It's not, it's not really that, uh, that uh, Stephen was hoping for condemnation, but he was hoping to get them to understand that you're not, you're not matching up to the law if you are not in Christ. Christ is the only way. The, the temple was never the final answer, the, the, the law was never the final answer. Jesus himself and his grace is the final answer. So everything that's not in Christ would face this kind of wrath and revilement and accusing uh, and and judgment and condemnation. This This is what Stephen was trying to get across. To shove everything that we understand about God through the cross is a very difficult thing, but this is certainly what even the Apostle John has in mind. In discussing this in Revelation 13, he discusses Jesus as the lamb slaughtered before the foundation of the world. That even before anything was ever created, before the world was set in place, Jesus had the cross in mind. So for us to simply view Jesus, for us to understand who God is, we must filter everything, creation, We must understand the law. We must understand, yes, even every aspect of the gospel and even our Christian life here. We must understand everything through the lens of a lamb slaughtered before the foundation of the world. We must filter everything we understand about God through this cross filter. They couldn't process it. And so even from our passage tonight, you can see right out of the gate, you stiff-necked people. Well, what, wh- what happens? What's their response? Well, they were enraged. They were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. This is a, this is a very unique phrase in our scriptures, but it may even sound a little bit uh, familiar to you. Uh, if you remember this from, from Luke 13, uh, where Jesus says, there are, there are many who will actually say in those days, didn't we do all of those things uh, and, and, and now you're casting us out of heaven? And Jesus says, no, depart from me. And he sends them into outer darkness where there is wailing and there is gnashing of teeth. There's anger against God. There's this response to, to Jesus, to his law and to his gospel. And when they are found to be rejecting of it, they get even madder. They get even more stubborn. And even later on in our passage in verse 57, he, uh, Stephen cried out with a loud, uh, they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. You can imagine that scene, it's, it's kind of like an angry uh, toddler, right, who's, who's holding, holding their ears and just screaming, ah, I'm not going to hear you. I'm not going to listen. This is what the law brings out. And my friend, my, my whole point in bringing all of this up and bringing this up is that we, we as God's people, we must hear his law. We cannot afford like these religious people, to hold our, our, our hands over our ears and to scream as loud as we can to try to drown out the harshness and the, the clarity of God's law and, and its effects on our lives. We can't. We must submit our hearts to them, and whatever God might diagnose within us, we must submit to. Why? Because the, the theologian of glory calls evil good and good evil and is never actually allowed uh, and able to meet up to the standards of the law. You can't do it. It's an impossible task. There is no salvation through the law. The only salvation is through the gospel itself, which is why Luther would go on and say this about the gospel. He is not righteous who does much, but he who without work believes much in Jesus, believes much in him. The law says, do this, and it's never done. Grace says, believe this, and everything is already done. And the love of God, I love this, the love of God does not find in us, but creates in us what is pleasing to it. The love of man comes into being through what what is pleasing to it. Only the love of God can bring about the love of God within us. It's not something we achieve, it's something... We receive. And this is something Stephen was trying to to help these these men understand. This way of law was never going to cut it. The law says do this, and it's never done. But believing in the gospel, then it's already done. And you can live from this position of gift, from security, from acceptance, and not for it. And, And so, yes, we must hear the word of the law so that we might have clarity when it comes to this word of the gospel so that when the gospel comes and when Jesus comes into our life and the Holy Spirit uh, comes into our hearts and starts pointing out uh, things that certainly uh, we fall short of the glory of God in, he's going to also bring this message of good news. And a man like Stephen who was full of the Spirit comes to them and says, you always resist the Holy Spirit He's the one who's actually trying to give you the life that you so desperately crave. So we must hear the law, but we also must hear the gospel. I I can say it this way, we must hear the law so that we can hear the gospel, so that there's clarity on all that Jesus has done for us, so that when uh, amazing grace hits our ears, we say, oh, how sweet the sound. But the whole message and whole life of the Christian and the whole life and the shape of the church is impressed with this cookie cutter of the cross. And this is what we see. Uh, Tonight, I just want to simply, as we go through the text, see two uh, cross-shaped imprints uh, here that we're going to see from this text. First, we're going to see Stephen's cross-shaped death, and then we're going to see the church's cross-shaped death ministry. And the whole point is for t- to us to understand that this gospel will leave on us this impression of the cross. We 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 will be worked through this cookie cutter of the cross. And so that means in one sense it will look significantly worse than it truly is. We're going we are going to be confronted with death just like Stephen and the, the church itself will be confronted with death just like this early church here. And yet, and yet, the entire good news of the gospel is tucked up within this cruciform image. So let's look real quick. Uh, Stephen's cross-shaped death. Stephen's cross-shaped death. And really quickly and very, very early on, and I don't, I don't know if as you read this, you resonated with some of this, and you're like, wow, this actually, in many ways, sounds a lot like Jesus. Just even reading through this text, there may have been bits, of, bits and pieces of, uh, of, the, of the crucifixion narrative that you might even have recognized as, wow, that sounds very familiar. Well, no doubt, Stephen was a man who was full of faith, and this comes from Uh, chapter 6, verse 5. Remember, there are a couple descriptions of Stephen that we have uh, throughout the book of Acts, and and one of them was that he was full of faith. In other words, Stephen was a man who did not cling on to his own righteousness, but really looked for an alien or an outside righteousness fixed in Christ. You can imagine Stephen himself uh, saying, it's not I, but it's Christ in me. Uh, It's it's not I who live, but it's uh, Christ who uh, gave himself for me. I, I just simply, the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I haven't done any of this. He's a man who's full of the Spirit and of power. We get this from verse 55, but also in chapter 6, verse 8, and certainly even Jesus himself, full of faith in all, of the, all that the Father had set, set in place, full of the Spirit and full of power. We have these descriptions of Jesus in our scriptures. We have Stephen who's confronting religion and giving clarity on the law. And this is the same thing we have with Jesus. Jesus has his harshest words for those who are religious. Why? Not because he was uh, seeking to be unloving to them. He was actually trying to get really the clarity of the law upon their heart. They weren't desperate. They were using the law as a ladder, as a mechanism, and Jesus was trying to knock out the ladder now uh, before they got to the throne of God and realized, man, we fall short. They were both both accused of blasphemy by the religious. It's interesting, if you go down to verse 56, there are a couple really, really fascinating things that uh, are lifted out of this text here, the the descriptions from from Stephen's execution. Uh, Stephen says in verse 56, Behold... I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. There's about every word in this sentence is packed with question marks and significance, even if it doesn't appear so right out of the gate. Uh, behold, I see the heavens opened. You can imagine like the, the clouds kind of being rolled, rolled away, uh, and maybe even this like light shining through. This would be like the classic like uh, Simba and Mufasa picture right there, like right, you know, with Rafiki, and all of a sudden, like, Simba, like, all this, like, the heavens opened in this way. A little bit more realistic, and not as cartoony. Um, he says, behold, I see the heavens opened. This would also be the uh, same verbiage, even in Jesus's baptism, where uh, he comes out of the water, and the heavens open, he sees the spirit descending like a dove, and this voice uh, crying out, uh, this is my beloved son, and who I am well pleased This this recognition of seeing the glory of God is is also part of of verse 55. He gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And the fact that Luke, a detailed oriented uh, scholar here, that he would mention these facts twice, seeing Jesus standing at the right hand of God is significant. We have uh, many other passages of scripture that talk about Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. And so you have this kind of uh, positional difference here. Where is Jesus? What is he doing? Is he sitting? Is he standing? Well, he's normally sitting, which would reflect the completeness of Jesus' work, his high priestly work, that he would sit down. When he ascended into heaven, he sat down at the right hand of God. We have that in, in Paul's theology and in Hebrews. But here we have all of a sudden in Stephen's execution, Jesus himself standing, as if he stood up in this moment of uh, Stephen's turmoil. So why would Jesus get up? Uh, that's a good question. Scholars kind of go back and forth. If you're asking me, I think there's only uh, one reason Jesus would have the need to stand up in this moment. And I think it's to make a defense against the false accusations uh, against Stephen here that they, are, that they are making. Jesus himself stands up and presents, and in one sense presents the finished work of uh, of, his, uh, of his atonement to the Father again, and says, and says Father, this one that who's, who's coming into your presence, who, who you see, this one is acceptable in your sight. A- accept him because of me. That's my personal take. You have Jesus standing, and even uh, Stephen using this phrase in verse 56, the Son of Man, is significant, which is exactly why uh, the Pharisees here would accuse him of blasphemy. This goes back to certainly Jesus's. Uh, Discussion in Matthew 26 with uh, the Pharisees at his personal trial, at his little uh, mock and and fake trial there. Uh, In Matthew 26, Jesus claims here that he is the Son of Man. And you have Stephen taking up this same language saying, I see Jesus standing, this Son of Man. I see this resurrected Savior. And Stephen is claiming to witness the same thing that Jesus himself uh, made plain in his, uh, in, hi- in his trial. And so the, the logic would naturally be, well, if we murdered Jesus or, or if we put Jesus to death on account of his blasphemy for claiming to be the Son of Man in this way, well, then certainly Stephen, who's claiming to witness this in real time uh, and in real space, he too would have to be put to death. And that's exactly what we see here. And so both Stephen and Jesus then die innocently. They die innocently. This goes back to those accusations that uh, the, the freedmen lobby against Stephen, and, and, and Luke indicates that these are false accusations. They're misinterpreting what, what he's actually saying, and then they're misbelieving the truth. And so in believing a lie, they now have to take over uh, their own ideas of truth. And <laughs> this goes back to Luther. They're calling evil good and good evil. And they're justifying their own actions here. And both are murdered then outside of the city. Go to verse 58. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Just as Jesus was crucified outside of Jerusalem, so Stephen is pushed out of the city. And this would be the only way that these men could actually perform an execution. Uh, They weren't allowed to execute them within the city, and so they had to get him outside. And so uh, you can imagine kind of this mob, whether pushing, shoving, carrying, uh, whatever it is, just forcing him out, causing him to flee, and they eventually stone him. The stoning would be right on par with uh, how, the, how the Jews would uh, treat somebody who is uh, uh, blaspheming. Uh, that would be according to the law that uh, Stephen would need to be stoned. And there's a significant amount of debate as to whether or not this was uh, an out-and-out out murder, like a mob killing, uh, or if this, this was actually in accordance with their laws and customs. Uh, and it's, in one sense, a moot point here uh, for us as we, as we interpret uh, what's happening here. Uh, we know that this was an, an unjust uh, death, and we can certainly see the uh, effects of uh, a poor understanding of the law and the gospel actually meeting a, a significant point here in, in breaking the law taking the life of somebody. And, uh, and then finally, there's a couple other things that are significant here that reflect even Jesus' cross-shaped death. Uh, Stephen's willingness to give up his, his life. Uh, now, this would be significantly different than Jesus. Jesus claims that nobody took uh, his life from him, but that he willingly gave it up. In other words, he, he is the one who uh, who, who gave up his own life, nobody took it away from him, whereas Stephen doesn't have any power to save his own life at this point. Uh, but you definitely see, even as we sang a little bit ago, we, we place our life into his hands, and we see that happening with, with Stephen. Uh, and then finally, uh, the gospel, even in real time, allowing Stephen, just like Jesus, to forgive those executioners. Uh, We see the same sort of verbiage. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Jesus cried out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Uh, And then, uh, do not uh, forgive forgive these sins, uh, for they don't know what they are doing. Stephen says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And so you can see, even in, in Stephen's death, this reflection or this shape of the cross. And you can see that these are, in many ways, the same things that we as God's people will will face. These are the things that God, by his grace, has given to us. He has given us faith. He has given us the spirit. He has given us the power over uh, death itself, not by merit or our own strength, but he has given it to us freely in Jesus. He gives us the ability to confront religion and have clarity on the law. And we too certainly and very easily could be uh, accused of blasphemy, uh, claiming to be one with Jesus. We have no right or comprehension or, or, or ability to, 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 to gain that, and yet we have that freely. In all of this, we have the ability to love and serve those who would persecute us and who have the freedom in the gospel then to forgive, even as Jesus forgave us. But secondly, we get to see the, cross, uh, the, the, the church's cross-shaped ministry. Going backwards here. In chapter 8, um, there's a couple things that are really, really significant for us to, to process here. Uh, and there's, there's three basic words that I want to just hit on. And all of, these, uh, all of these things that happen to the church, it has to be recognized, happen because of the sovereignty of God or happen according to the will of God. It's not an accident This isn't a a mishap. Everything that God is doing in these scenarios is a strategic advance of the church and it reflects this uh, cross-shaped or this uh, cruciform-shaped life and ministry that that we possess. So you have here in verse 8-1, it's it's kind of this cliff-hanging passage of scripture. There's probably one other passage of scripture that's like it where you're like, oh, it's a powerful cliff-hanging moment. Uh, There's one in Jonah that's really solid, at the end of the book, uh, Jonah mentions something about cows at the very end. And you're like, yes, got include the cows. And here you have uh, in this portion, like in Saul approved of his executions. Very dramatic scene here. But Paul, uh, Saul, who would eventually become the Apostle Paul, uh, makes a little cameo entrance here into this passage. We'll catch him a little bit later in, in chapter 13, but it's a significant moment that Luke draws Uh, that Luke draws Saul into into the forefront here. Notice, first of all, that the church is scattered by the will of God. Scattered by the will of God. We see this in in verse 1. There was a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and then they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. We see this scattering is actually a, a fulfillment of God's promise to send the church to Judea and Samaria from all the way b- uh, back from chapter one. You will be my witnesses. You will be. And you're like, well, how? I don't, I don't want to go to Judea and Samaria. Tough. Through what's going to happen, through the cross-shaped ministry of what's happening, you, you will be scattered into Judea and Samaria. You, you will be pushed out into these regions that I am sending you, and you will be my witnesses there in the next little portion, in in verse four and following, we see that God actually allows the gospel to be preached in these places. And so the church is scattered by the will of God. This is an intentional scattering. And so persecution is driving gospel advance in the early church. And this is true even today. They They can wall off borders, and they can wall off jail cells, and they can wall off homes and uh, and state borders, they can wall off whatever they want to wall off, but nothing can prohibit the spread of the gospel in hearts. And this is what we begin to realize uh, a little bit later on, uh, especially in this next passage that we are going to uh, study coming up. You see that the gospel, even through this persecution, is spreading even. Faster, it's spreading even louder. It's going, it, it, it's being uh, more clearly spread and uh, uh, advantageously spread throughout the area because of the scatter. In other words, God is actually using the scattering as an accelerant uh, to the fire of gospel advance throughout this area, and even the persecution is because of the will of God. The church is then persecuted by the will of God. And it's hard to to wrap your head and mind around this. The only thing I think we can can actively say here is that the same same shape and form of Jesus' life will be the shape and the form of our life as believers. And this this is seen even as Paul himself is the one who is leading the charge in persecution against the church in Jerusalem. In verse one, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Paul himself leading the charge, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And my friend, we don't, we don't know what persecution will and will not achieve. There's no way for us to know. Even as, even as we sang, we We were singing words that hinted to this idea of we are unable to understand the depths of why God is using these things. But what we can say is the church itself was able later on to have a very crystal clear picture of the gospel because of this Paul-led great persecution. Uh, This showed up on my Facebook timeline, this little uh, meme of, uh, somebody was, was trying to indicate this idea of uh, how powerful the idea of grace truly is. Can you, can, you imag- can you imagine when Paul showed up to heaven's gates and they're standing there, are the very people that Paul himself persecuted and, and, and murdered in, I, uh, in Jerusalem. Can you, can you imagine those people seeing Paul walk up to heaven's gates and like, What? What? Later on, we're going to have to confront the idea that no doubt the friends and family and loved ones of those who had been murdered by Paul are going to have to accept Paul and even then accept his apostleship. And my friend, there is no greater clarity on how far the grace of God goes than to try to wrap your head around that very picture. And yet you can see the church of God— gaining crystal clear clarity on the gospel uh, or or on the law and then from this moment forward gaining crystal clear uh, understanding of the gospel that yes grace goes even that far where the people who murdered your loved ones is, is welcomed right into the community because of what Jesus has done. So much is said of those who have been martyred and the success and the um, the the unseen success of, of those who have been martyred, and yet we, we we would tend to think that those people or those missionaries, uh, we 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 base all of that on on numbers and statistics. Were they able to be successful? Uh, were they able to? Um, bring people to, to the kingdom because of their death. We might never know the final numbers or statistics, but you look at wha- what happened even through the apostle Paul and we say even that persecution in the day, Paul's persecution is still giving us gospel clarity in this time. As we read Paul's, we understand his theology, Paul comes to the end and says, I am the chiefest of sinners. No doubt he had his own persecution of uh, the saints here in mind as why he would be the chiefest of sinners, and yet he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And so we too today, we would read Paul and say, this persecution is still having a dynamic effect even in us in the church today. It's a powerful thing that God is using. And the results and the fruit of that is is absolute, there's no way we can measure that or know how significant God uses persecution. And there's persecution going on in our day you have to imagine, how is God going to use the persecution, uh, especially the persecution in, in China, to help fuel gospel advance? We, we have no idea, but we can say, we can say uh, without a shadow of a doubt that God chooses to use persecution. As we just sang, it's through thorny ways that leads to a joyful end. That's how it happens. And finally, we see the church's Unbelievably successful by the will of God. Want to read real quick, dip into verse 4. We'll obviously cover it next week. But in verse 4 of chapter 8 it says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. The church is wildly successful by the will of God. It is this cross-shaped ministry. It's the ministry of the church that looks like dying. It's this cruciformed church ministry that that causes us to advance, that causes us to move forward. In other words, we we don't move forward on a ladder as a church, and as the church. we, We would do well to keep the cross as an iconic symbol for our faith. And yet so oftentimes it's so easy to get into the mentality of a ladder-shaped Christianity or a ladder-shaped church ministry. My friend, don't move beyond the cross in our ministry. Don't move beyond the cross in your own Christian life and experience. The shape of our life and the shape of ministry is absolutely shaped by nothing else other than the cross. Which this means a couple things for us as theologians of the cross and not of glory. It means that... God does not waste your suffering. He doesn't waste your suffering. We we realize that the, the church is scattered, persecuted, and yet successful. This looks like a defeat for Stephen. This looks like the end for Stephen. And really, this is the unbelievable beginning of the spread of the kingdom. God doesn't waste suffering. He designs to use suffering to bring the cookie cutter of the cross right on our hearts and stamp the cross right on our hearts. And where death is present, we cling on to the words of life even more. Don't don't be ashamed or afraid of your suffering. Jesus will use it to conform you to the image of Jesus in his dying and in his rising. It means, secondly, that God is sovereign over our own darkness He's sovereign over our own darkness. You can imagine the things that Stephen himself was processing and you can imagine the things that certainly after his conversion that, that, that Paul was processing relating to his own sin, relating to how God might use him. My friend, we can certainly say that there is no place dark enough where God can't redeem you, God can't use you. And don't be, a, don't be uh, surprised when, as we'll discuss a little bit later, that God will use your darkness. He will use your darkness to bring light. And this is my third point of cross-shaped life. What does this mean for us? God will use your weakness. He will. He will use your weakness. We've talked about this earlier on. God is more concerned in using your confession than he is using your competence. God delights to use your confession more than your competence. The competence can just be a sham for ladder-like living. The competence can be a sham for theologians of glory. And the cross feels different and looks different. And in those moments, there's only one hope. It's a hope of confession. It's banking on the promise. It's, I don't have it, but I know one who does. I don't have what it takes, but I know one who has all the power. I don't have any righteousness, but I know one who was righteous for me. And don't be surprised when God will actually use your weakness to give somebody else clarity on the law and clarity on the gospel. This is exactly what we see in Paul. And praise God, we, well, we see pretty much only well, we, we do see Stephen explaining the law, but it's hard to, it's hard to pin some sin on Stephen. That guy looks pretty, pretty good. But he does clarify, and certainly by his own description of the law, you'd have to imagine he would confess and say, it's not me. It's not me. It's this beautiful Savior that we have. My friend, understand that you, you, might, you might be facing something in your life that feels like you're dying. And according to this word, I have to say, th- yeah, yeah. That, that's the shape of our life. And that's the shape of our ministry. It, it's what it looks like to be in Jesus. And yet, and yet, in these dark times, nothing's wasted. Ev- everything you need, you certainly have in Jesus. Life is there. Grab onto it. And by faith, hold onto it. And when you see somebody else who's in the same way suffering, you use what God has put in your hands to help other people not see your ability to climb the ladder, but to see Jesus on a cross. Say, look at the God we have. Look at the grace we've been given. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would continue to use suffering and persecution and death to fuel your mission. Father, do what we can't do. If it were up to us, we would all be ladder climbers. If it was up to us, we would all be glory seekers. And yet, Father, you've shown us a completely other way. You've showed us the way of the cross, that even as we experience death in this life, that there is an unbelievable life now and to come through Jesus that there's power even over our circumstances and power even over death that we don't have to fear. But there's the ability to love and freely forgive even in the darkest of moments, to embrace the realities of the gospel even in the darkest of times. Father, I pray for the one who's, who's suffering today, who feels like their life, even this past week, has been shaped like a cross, Father, I pray that they might know their weakness so that the strength of Jesus might rest on them. Father, I pray that you would not waste it. We know that you don't. But Father, help us even as Paul did to embrace weakness so that we might know your strength. And Father, even if you should lead us into a, a circumstance this week that's like Stephen, Father, it's all going to be okay. Everything has been secured for us. It's all finished. The law has been silenced. There's no condemnation. Nothing will separate us from your love, and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So Father, give us boldness to speak like Stephen. Give us clarity on matters of the law and clarity on matters of the gospel so that we might be able to speak and even resist those who would rise up and and speak against the gospel. Father, I pray that you would help many people in our community through us to see the cross as well and embrace Jesus and follow Him. We pray these things through Christ. Free from the law, oh happy condition. Jesus has bled and there. salvation come on to me